And I know that's God's heart. That's my heart too for revival. Uh, every morning when I pray, I pray for that. I, I need it. I need revival, come back to life again, to have that passion, that passion for serving God and following Jesus Christ and having that passion for obeying the word of God. I, I need it. Our church needs it. I know our community does, our nation, and, and we need to pray for that. And God's the only one that can bring it, but that's God's heart too. God's heart too. And so we got to get prepared. We got to get prepared. And that's why we've been studying through God's word. And we're studying through the book of First Corinthians. We've been doing it for about five or six months now. And we're about to wrap it up. I think I'm gonna try and wrap it up next week. Uh, but we've been in this for a couple months now. We're at chapter 14. What a chapter. I wanted to skip this chapter. But you're, you're seeing in a minute why I wanted to skip it. But I, I can't, you know. All of God's word is God's word. And so we've been studying through 1 Corinthians to become efficient and more effective in our mission and our message. And as Christians, as Christ's follower, our mission is to get outside the walls here into our community and around the world and share the greatest love story in the universe, the story of Jesus Christ. So we need to share the gospel with people who desperately need Jesus Christ. And so as a church family, we've been tidying up, you know, tidying up. That means declutter so that we can focus, so we can zoom in you know, on what's important, keeping the main thing, the main thing. We're Christ followers who live for Christ and we wanna share Christ with those who are hurting and lost. And so the apostle Paul was writing this church that he started. This church is only a few years old in the city of Corinth, one of the most immoral, ungodly cities, most materialistic city there in the Roman empire. And so he writes this church a letter and this church is dealing with all kinds of issues. It's dealing with all kinds of division, gossiping, backbiting, people fighting, all, all that, imagine that. And, and he rebuked the church for, for their division. And he urged them to recognize that God created them to work together. I mean, you're one body, you're a family. We're to work together for the cause of Christ. In chapter 12, Paul taught that God had given each person in the church, each believer in the church, a spiritual gift. And that's a, a free and undeserved gift given to us by God so that we can use it to build up the body, to build up the church, to be used in the ministry of the church. And some of these gifts are very identified. Some are more subtle behind the scenes and quiet, yet all of them are needed for the body to function and be healthy and strong. And so we look at several principles about that there in chapter 12 and 13, how God determines who gets what gift. You don't earn it or deserve it. I don't either. God determines who gets what gift. No one has all the gifts. We saw that there in chapter 12. No one gift is meant for everybody. We saw that too. But we saw this in chapter 13, gifts should be exercised with love, God's love, right? Very last verse of chapter 12, verse 31. And now after he talked about gifts and gave us a list of two different types of gifts, he says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. No matter what gift you got, doesn't matter if you don't love, that's the most excellent way, your attitude, your love. Paul says, if we don't live a life of love, nothing I know will matter, nothing I say will matter, nothing I believe will matter, nothing I give or accomplish will matter. And at the end of chapter 13, he says, these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And if you don't know what love is, please read chapter 13. Our world has no clue what love is, it doesn't. It's all based on condition. I love you if you do this, if I feel this way. God's love is not that way. It's patient and kind and forgiving. And we talked about that, chapter 13. Chapter 14 now, it starts off verse one, follow the way of love. Here again, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. You know, he's talking about love. You know, it's the most excellent way. This is what love is. You know, all th these three remain, but love's the greatest of them all. And then verse 14, again, follow the way of love. It seems like there's something going on that's wrong 
with the way people love each other concerning these gifts and how they're treating each other in the church. So in chapter 14, we're going to get some stuff. And, and, and I wore this too because, you know, we're starting BBS tomorrow, but I'm also going to get in the weeds. I don't want to get in the weeds, but I'm probably getting some weeds today, you know, and I want to be able to get out quickly. All right. It would be, it would be easy for us to get distracted today by this chapter, having a debate over speaking in tongues in church. And also by the statement we're going to read in chapter 14, that women should be silent in the church. You see why I wanted to skip that chapter, this chapter? It's like, whoa. You know, whoa. So what I want to encourage you to do is I want you to focus this morning so we don't get distracted. We need to focus on the real issue. Context is everything. The Apostle Paul was addressing the very selfish worship that was taking place in the church. They were coming in, in the church and they were making worship all about their needs, their perception. I mean, their, their preferences. And, and they were missing the real purpose and focus of worship, which is why we gather here today is the honor of God honor a son, Jesus Christ, and to encourage each other in our Christian journey. That's what getting together like this is all about. It's not about, do I like the music or like the way the pastor's dressed or this and that, is that my prayer? It's not about you, it's not about me. It's about God and to honor him and encourage others in their Christian journey. But because of our selfishness and because of their selfishness here in this church, God's truth, his word was not getting hurt. There was too much chaos in the church which means lives weren't being changed because God's word was not being heard. It means growth wasn't happening because God's word wasn't being heard. So Paul, out of love for his people, out of love for God's word, out of love for his mission, he calls them out. He calls his, his, his family out again. And he says, man, you guys need, basically saying you guys need to focus. You guys need to tidy up. You need to declutter. You made this church thing all about you and what you want, it's not about you. And you gotta focus on Jesus and on the ministry and following him and sharing him. So that's, that's what I want us to do today. So we're gonna tidy up with the Apostle Paul, chapter 14. If you're able, would you please stand with me out of reverence and honor for God's holy word. I wanna just read some of these verses here. We're gonna look at the whole chapter, but verse one, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mystery with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. And then he went on to give some examples, musical instruments. If you can't understand what's being played or said, what, what good is it, all right? Now I want you to jump to verse 33. For, and he talks about the worship again. It's all about worship. This whole chapter is about biblical worship, what it's about. And he says, for God is not a God, there in verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Don't leave, don't leave. Verse 39, don't leave now. Verse 39, verse 40, all right? Says, therefore, my brothers, again, be eager. Here you see that again, be eager to what? Prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. You may be seated. Oh, my goodness. Y'all sitting down. All right. 
This chapter starts, verse one, look at follow, follow the way of love. That's important. Loving people like God loves us, patient and kind and forgiving, eagerly desire spiritual gifts to build up the body, all right? Especially the gift of prophecy. And then that chapter ends with, therefore again, you know, be eager. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to what? Prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. You know, just how that verse, that chapter starts and how it ends, there's a pattern here. We gotta love people. And even in this discussion this morning, it's gotta be out of love, God's kind of love. And desire, we should desire spiritual gifts that build up the body that's for the common good, you know? And, and our worship should be fitting and orderly to honor God and his son, Jesus Christ. So, so I titled this message, don't let the worship of God distract from the word of God. Cause that's exactly what was happening in this chapter. Their worship was so kind of chaotic and all this stuff was happening and people standing and saying stuff. And it was so distracting that people couldn't even hear the word of God. And it's the word of God that changes lives. So let's understand the issues. Here's some, um, some definitions, tongues. What does it mean when it talks about tongues? Tongues mean to, to utter unknown words, unknown words. You don't, you don't understand what you're saying. And there's a couple different situations in the Bible in the book of Acts, Pentecost, saying about that. Tongues of fire, they're in Acts chapter two. You know, that, that's an unknown, unknown, tongue, uh, unknown tongue to the one who's speaking, but it's known to somebody else. And so God gave those people there at the day of Pentecost, there was people from all over the world there. And he gave people, the, the missionaries, the apostles, the opportunity to speak an unknown language to them. It'd be like God giving me the ability to speak Spanish right now to Spanish speaking people. That's what happened in Acts chapter two. It was an unknown tongue to them, but known to other people. Here in 1 Corinthians, you know, it talks about uttering mysteries. It talks about, you know, when you speak in tongues, it only edifies himself. So there seems to be another type of tongue, like a prayer language, a language of prayer that's not known to you. It's like mysteries. You don't even know what you're saying, nor does anybody else. That, that's tongues, uttering words that you do not understand or know. Prophecy, though. Here's prophecy, which he says eager. This is, this is one you wanna be eager to get and use. Prophecy is not foretelling the future, it's foretelling. It's presenting the truth of God's word. What I'm doing today is prophecy, just teaching God's word. That's what it means to teach God's word, prophecy, to present the truth of God. Now, before we get into this, let me tell you about my history and my experience in, the, in this controversy dealing with tongues. I grew up in a small church down in Tampa. And I never saw tongues, never had it. Still have, I still have never spoken in tongues, you know, never saw it, didn't know much about it. I was actually in fact told in the church I grew up in that tongues were a dead gift, that they no longer exist. They were only for the apostles for that time. And when you look at church history for hundreds of years, tongues was not really mentioned, you know. I never saw it, never understood it. Uh, I also knew that even in ungodly religions today, tongues are, are, are part of that, those religions. Remember we talked about, when we talked about gifts, even Satan can counterfeit gifts. So you gotta be careful about all that kind of stuff. So I, I was told that. I was also told personally by people that tongues, to receive the gifts of tongues, where you just started speaking and didn't even know what you were saying was a requirement for being saved. I, I was told by people personally when I was just a kid growing up and a teenager that uh, I had to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second baptism, and then I would get the gift of tongues. And if I didn't get it, then I was a second class citizen, uh, second class Christian. That's what they'd say. You, you still might be saved, but you're not mature. 
You're not spirit-filled. Only those people that are mature and spirit-full of the spirit are people that speak in tongues. So if you don't speak in tongues yet, man, you haven't arrived yet, you know? And, and so I was told that. And I'm like, whoa, never seen it, don't understand it, being told I got a habit or I'm not really growing in my faith. I might not even make it to heaven. And then I was even told as a, as a teenager that, hey, if you want to learn, come to our class. We have a class at the church where we teach you how to speak in tongues. You know, and I'm like, wait a minute, if it's a gift from God, why do you got to teach me? So, I mean, I, I just heard all that stuff. That's, that's my context. That's my experience. And I, I don't want to interpret scripture with my experience. You know, I, I want to interpret my experience with scripture. Scripture is what's important. You know, where do I, what do I believe today now about tongues? You know, here's what I believe. I don't believe that tongues is a dead gift because I, I believe this. I believe God could still use it on the mission field if he wanted to. When I was in Africa last year, Kenya, my wife and I in Ethiopia, if God wanted to give those missionaries there, we were around the ability to speak in a language that they did not know, but Africans knew, Ethiopians knew, hey, God can do anything. So I believe God could still do that. There's, there's people in the church, in our church here, that come up to me and tell me that they have a, a special gift of a prayer language between them and God, and they do it just between them and God at home when they pray. You know what? Okay, I don't have a problem with that. That's between you and God. You know, people tell me that. You know, that's between you and God. So I'm okay with that. But I also believe that a lot of tongues today has been greatly abused. Tongues has been elevated way beyond its intended purpose. I believe the way a lot of tongues are done in churches today is very distracting from God's word. It's not done in an orderly manner. As an adult, I have been in churches where tongues has, had happened, all that stuff, like on vacation or different things happen, and I'm getting, I'm confused, I'm distracted, I don't, I can't pay attention to what's going on. That's me, you know. Therefore, like scripture, what I desire is not tongues, but I desire to give to prophecy, like God says. My desire, and even in our church here, that's where our focus is on trying to present God's word in a clear way that people understand. So saying all that, and, I, and I, we got people that differ with me on this issue right here in our own church. I've talked with some about it. We've made this issue way too important. Praying in tongues is an issue on which Christians can respectfully and lovingly agree to disagree. I, I think there's godly people on both sides. I, I've talked with pastor friends in this town that, that said they believe in speaking in tongues and even in their worship services, you know, and I might not agree with that personally, but that's them and I'm still their friend and still love them and care about them. Praying in tongues is not what determines salvation. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone. Praying in tongues is not what separates a mature Christian from an immature Christian. And whether or not there's this thing such as prayer language between you and God, you know, that's not essential to the Christian faith. That's between you and God. So while I have my beliefs on this subject, I also recognize that there's men and women who believe in this gift, who practice this gift, and, and they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're worthy of my love and respect, all right? Even if we differ on some of this stuff, it's not the essentials. So saying all that, I wanted you to hear kind of where I come from, what I believe, you know, what do we take away here from this discussion in chapter 14? Remember, here's the here's setup. There's so much chaos in the worship service that the word of God was being distracted. People couldn't hear it. So I see three major principles here. The principle of edification, that's the first one. Uh, where we see it in verse one, verse five, verse 12. Follow the way of love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. That's speaking God's truth, teaching God's truth. I would like for every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy, speak God's word and truth, you know, to people so they can understand. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongue unless he interprets so that the church may be edified, built up, 
encourage. Verse 12, so it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that what? Build up the church, edification, edify, build up. Paul's concern was that the Corinthians were emphasizing personal experiences over corporate unity. They were focusing on gifts that made them feel close to God, but they missed the gifts that were intended for the common good. It wasn't just about you coming and having some experience and feeling a certain way. So here's my point. We need to focus on the gifts that are intended to build up the body. We see that very clearly here in this chapter. Focus on the gifts that are intended to build up the body for the common good, to build up people, encourage people, the whole body. And then Paul told them, rather than focus on tongues, they should pursue the gifts of prophecy. He, he, he did say that the gift, even though the gifts of tongues was personally enriching to him, prophecy enriches the whole body. And then Paul gives three illustrations, instruments, where he talks about how the proclamation of God's truth in a way that people understand that's the most desirable gift. And it just makes sense. If you don't understand what's being said or what's, you know, what good is it doing to you? You know, and the application here for us today is this. When we worship, the focus in worship should not be on what makes you feel a certain way or makes you feel good. And, and I, I know Christians, they run from church to church looking for that feeling, that experience. It, it's not about you. The focus in worship should not be on that. It should not be on what will draw a crowd either. You can draw a crowd with a circus. You know, our focus should be, when we come to church as a family, our focus should be on what encourages, what comforts, what strengthens the body of Christ. We should pursue those things which teach and instruct and, in, and encourage the body of Christ, the believers. We should be more concerned about doctrine, the truth of God's word than experiences. But it seems like everybody's looking for an experience. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that emotions should be absent in worship. You know, worship is not a class that we attend. It's meant to be a vital encounter with God that includes our head, yes, but it also includes our heart. And, and again, I, I know I need to work on this area in my life too. I grew up in that same church where, man, you never, pl- you never clapped. You never raised your hand. You never stood unless you were walking out to leave. You know, I, I grew up like that, you know? And, and so it, became, it got to where things were just, you know, they talk about being so reverent that, man, you couldn't show any emotions. Man, we need to have emotions. We're coming together to worship God. In this church, it's okay if you want to stand or lift your hand. It's okay if you want to applaud. Now, when we applaud, please understand, we're not saying good job with that. I like that song. Man, we're applauding to God the message we just sang in agreement. We agree with that, you know? And in our church here, there's that freedom to, to worship in, in different ways. However, I suspect that Paul would tell a lot of churches today to focus less on creating that emotional experience and focus more on solid instruction from God's word. It's God's word how we know, who, how we find out who God is and who Jesus is and how we can have heaven as our eternal home. So the principle of edification, focus on gifts that are intended to build up the body. Principle of communication. He goes on talking about if you're gonna build up the body, you gotta communicate to them. They gotta understand you. Uh, verse 16, if you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to, uh, amen to your thanksgiving since he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, verse 17, but the other man's not edified because he doesn't understand what you're saying. But in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 in tongues. So here again, the principle of communication. Here's the point. Focus on gifts that will help people understand God's truth. 
Focus on the gifts that will help people understand God's truth. And Paul goes on to argue that if you wanna reach out to unbelievers, we need to talk to them in a way that they can understand. If they come in here and there's all kind of tongues that are being spoken and people are doing things that are, they don't have a clue what's going on, man, they're gonna think something strange, they're gonna think something's weird and they're not gonna understand anything. That's why Paul says, man, if, if you say you have that gift of tongues, there's gotta be an interpreter there to interpret what you just said or, or what you're saying is not gonna benefit nobody. It's just noise. On the other hand, if a non-believer comes into your church, Paul says, and somebody is prophesying, speaking God's truth in an understandable way, he says in verse 23 and 24, look, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and he will be judged by all and the secret of his hearts will be laid bare and he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. It doesn't happen because of the emotional experience. It happens because of the word of God is convicting their heart through the spirit of God. When God's truth is clearly presented, man, it will do several things we see here. It will make a person aware of their sin, that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. It will alert them to the reality of judgment, of the eternal consequences of their decision here on earth about Jesus Christ. Man, it will help that person humble themselves before God and seek God's grace and forgiveness so they can experience new life and acceptance that comes from putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the leader of their life and the forgiver of their sins. The application here for us is, is simple. We should do things that help people understand the truth. We don't wanna complicate things here. God, the gospel is very simple, you know? We wanna do things that help people understand the truth and that will help them share in the life and worship of God. The gospel is very important truth. We gotta communicate it clearly. We must define theological terms so that other people can understand what we're talking about. Do you know what, even here today, I speak in English and I could still sound like to an unbeliever that comes in here, like I'm speaking in tongues, if I don't explain certain terms and talk in a way that they can understand. That's why we gotta be careful of Christian cliches and, and we've gotta explain theological terms in a way that people can understand. People do not read the Bible anymore. Even people who go to church don't read the Bible anymore. And we wonder why we got a mess. And we wonder why we don't know how to raise kids and have a happy marriage and deal with life and deal with temptation, you know? So in the area of spiritual gifts, the Corinthians were missing the point. They wanted the gifts that made them feel more spiritual and more emotional. Instead, Paul says, you should be pursuing gifts that would help other people grow in their faith. That's knowing the word of God and obeying the word of God. So we gotta always remember that, that God brings us together so that we can honor him. But so we can spur, the Bible says, spur, encourage one another on to growth and to becoming more like Christ. That's the whole purpose. So we gotta build them up and we gotta communicate in such a way that they understand. And then there's the last one, the principle of consideration. I'm gonna skip that one. All right, or, no, okay, I'll talk about it. All right, verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. That's something I use even in our worship services here. God, you know, I feel like God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Then you go, you know, and, and so worship should not be haphazard. It should not be out of control. But please don't misunderstand what's being said here. Paul's not saying that worship should be boring. I mean, it shouldn't be boring. Paul is saying that our worship should show our respect and honor for God and for each other. The Bible does not forbid creativity in worship. Man, we gotta be creative. God's given us that gift of being creative in worship. But God says, I do forbid chaos. 
No chaos, but creativity in worship. Now in verse 34 and 35, Paul says some things that raises some eyebrows. And it's a very difficult passage because it's a very politically incorrect passage in our society today. As in the congregation of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. What does all that mean? Here again, the context is so important. Here's what it, you know, here, here, here's what it doesn't mean. He is not saying that women cannot talk in church. He's not saying that. He is not forbidding women from talking in church. You go back to chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 11, he's given guidelines to women who are prophesying and praying in church. Remember, he's talking about their hair covering, what they shouldn't cover their hair, da-da-da, all that kind of stuff. So he's not saying women can't talk in church. What is he saying? I believe he's saying, you know, this is a situational command for what's going on in that church. Remember, brand new church, Christianity just got started. People becoming Christians from all different pagan walks of life. The, sit, the churches were not that big. You know, these are probably home churches, 15, 20 people in these churches. They just, this church is only a couple years old, brand new. Christianity just started. In the city of Corinth, women have been converted from all kinds of foreign religions. And, and now they had this new freedom. And they were very excited with the new freedom that they had been given in Christ, but now they're taking it too far in worship, in the public worship service and causing chaos in worship. Here's my two principles. Worship should be orderly rather than chaotic. We see here in this chapter, but also we see with this situation here, worship should be considerate rather than offensive. Worship should be considerate rather than offensive. Here's the context. In the Greek context, Jewish context, which these women were coming out of, women were discouraged from saying anything in public. And they were certainly not allowed to confront men or question men publicly. They didn't do that in those days. Apparently, some of the women who had become Christians and knew they had been set free from all, some of that, all that religious baggage of their past thought their Christian freedom gave them the right to question men in public worship services. So the speaking to which Paul is referring to here was the inappropriate asking of questions that would have disrupted the worship service. Therefore, the women, when he says they should remain silent in the church, not because they're never to speak in the church, they can say things and pray and do different things like that, but because they are not to speak out with any questions that would distract from the worship and then it would therefore not build up the body. So I believe what's happening here is that women were asking questions during the public worship service, apparently in a disruptive manner, because remember the times, the culture of the time. They were offensively social. I mean, uh, they were offensive socially because women didn't do that back then. You didn't question men publicly. And that was distracting other people. So now they're not paying attention to what's being taught. They're paying attention to what's being said. And I'm sure these, these women were having some questions and that was considered publicly. They were standing up and asking questions about what's being said. Kind of like what can be done in a, in a Sunday school or Bible study class, but not in the public worship. And that was considered to be inconsiderate of others because it was distracting from others. The questions they were asking, whatever question they were asking could have been easily addressed at home. And so Paul says, hey, that's where that question should be asked. That's where that discussion should be at home. In fact, some of those women asking questions could have been wives of the men who were teaching, you know? So can, can you imagine how, how uncomfortable it would be for me? Uh, as I'm preaching and my wife, Nancy, was to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, 
what did you mean by that? And hey, what about this situation? And right in the middle of the message, now, I'm so thankful. If you raise your hand, I ain't gonna call on you. I ain't gonna call on you. That'd, be, that'd, that'd throw me off, that'd be disruptive, all that kind of stuff. Wait and ask me questions later, you know, afterwards. And so that's what I believe this is about. I believe here again, the issue is not the role of women in the church. The issue continues to be the nature of biblical worship and how biblical worship is orderly and it's considerate of other people in the congregation. What does that mean for us today? Application. If our actions are distracting others in worship, then you ought to be silent, you know, or step out out of consideration of other people. Even when we disagree, it's better to address the issue privately than to make a scene publicly, you know? So, so this chapter is a reminder that it's so easy for us to get distracted in worship with our own personal preferences or other issues. Our concern should be what's best for the kingdom of God. And God has designed us to work best and to experience God's greatest fulfillment when we focus on other people rather than ourselves. And we focus on God and honoring him and being considerate of other people. For our vertical worship, fellowship with God to be good and fulfilling, God tells us our horizontal you know, fellowship with each other. It's got to be good and fulfilling and considerate. We're to love God with everything we got, right? And have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. But then when you do, you love your neighbor as yourself. You love people. And that means you're considerate to them. You're not distracting. You're not discouraging. Paul encourages us to remember what it's all about and, and live for eternity. Remember what worship's all about. So we got, we got to work hard to avoid distractions and maintain our focus and make sure God, his word, his son is our focus. In our worship, our primary concern is not that we have a good time, that we have a, an experience. God is concerned with ex communicating his character and heart to his children. God's concerned about communicating the truth of his love, his love to those who are lost and hurting that come to his house. True worship is not about whether we were touched, but whether or not God was honored and respected. It's not whether or not we felt God's presence, you know, but whether or not we were fully present before God ourselves, that we were all in, that we were focusing on him. In short, God wants us to love people enough that we are willing to take our eyes off ourselves and use our gifts to reach spiritual dying people. I mean, to reach spiritually out to dying people with a message of hope and new life. I mean, that, that's a lesson all of us must learn. All of us must learn. We gotta be careful that we don't let, you know, the worship service, the, the worship of God distract people from the word of God. The word worship comes from two words. It means worth and ship. Worth and ship. In the dictionary, worship means to ascribe, assign, define worth, to define, declare worth, to give worth, to declare worth. The meaning of worship then means that we are to give back to God, to assign him, to declare to him his true and proper place in our life. Think about it. All the troubles in this world comes from us failing to do that. Every sin can ultimately be traced back to failing to attribute the proper place and priority and worth to God. When we worship, we come here to declare his worth. Psalm 149, verse three, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. What is God worth to you? 
Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We have our being because of God. Even our hunger for God itself is God-given. He's the initiator. Everything we do for God is in response to what God has done for us. Everything that we have comes from his hand. We have life because God gave us breath. Our acts of worship are responses to what God has already done in our life. You know, we serve him not, not to become his children. We serve him because we are his children and we have joined him in the family business. Worship doesn't bring God into our presence. God's always present, he's everywhere. We worship to live in God's presence. Do you see how important worship is to God and how important it should be to us? And let's be honest, he deserves much better than what we give him. So what is God worth to you? You know, if you don't love him, the words are meaningless. You, know, you can say one thing, God knows your heart. I know this, I know what you're worth to him. His one and only son. For God's loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever, no matter who you are or where you've been, that whosoever believes in him, that means trust in him, rely upon him, should have eternal life find forgiveness, no more shame, no more guilt, purpose, peace with God, children of God, child of God. That changes everything. And you have eternal life in heaven. That takes away your fear of dying because when you leave this place, you're going to a better place. One of the greatest gifts we can give to God, man, is our life. I'm gonna pray in just a moment. It's between you and God. If you come clean and say, God, please forgive me of my sins. You're right, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the Messiah who died on the cross for my sins, who shed his blood, who rose from the dead because he is God in the flesh. And I wanna follow him the rest of my life. I want him to be the Lord of my life, which means the leader, the boss, the CEO, he's calling the shots and he's my savior. The Bible says you make that decision from your heart and you accept Christ and receive Christ and put your faith and trust in Christ and follow him the rest of your life. Man, you're spiritually born again. You're forgiven, you're a child of God. And that's the great news. Will you pray with me? Dear Father, you know who's here and doesn't have that peace in their heart knowing heaven's their home, that their sins are forgiven, that they're right with you. Father, help them to talk to you right now from their heart, to be honest with you, to come clean and say that they are a sinner and they ask you to forgive them of their sins. And Father, they tell you they believe Jesus Christ is your son and that he died on the cross for their sins, shed his blood and rose from the dead and that they believe in him, they trust in him, they wanna follow him the rest of their life. Father, for those that prayed that prayer in a minute, give them a peace knowing you heard it. Give them courage to tell somebody. Help us be a church that will walk, walk alongside them and help them now understand what it means to, to follow Christ the rest of their life. And Father, forgive us, some of us here, we've just gotten so distracted. We made worship all about us and our preferences and, and we've forgotten whose house this is and what this is all about. It's your house, you deserve worship. And so Father, help us to live in such a way. Assess our friends, our family, our workers, just how much you're worth to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.